Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Marianne Sullivan. And this is Jasmine Singer. And on this week's show, Jasmine has an interview that seriously is going to knock your socks off. Lori Kim Alexander, who hails originally from Jamaica, but is now located in the Bronx, is one of the most thoughtful and innovative thinkers we've run across in a long time about gender, race, food, nature, animals, and even more. She has been central to a number of efforts in this space, including Black Veg Fest, the North Bronx Collective, and her newest project, The Cipher. If you don't know what some or all of these are yet, you are in for a real treat. You loved this interview, didn't you? Yes, totally. And also, I usually do interviews in the morning, but for some reason, this one we did at the end of the day, and I like couldn't sleep that night because I just kept thinking about all of these things she was bringing up and... I, I sort of lost time. I was like in this timelessness when I was speaking with her. She's such a beautiful soul. I really connected with her. I told her at the end that I loved her and I mean it. <laughs> it's a little extra, but you know, I'm a lesbian. A little bit. <laughs> anyway, on this week's Flock bonus segment, I will be continuing my conversation with Lori Kim. And if you are a Flock member, you will get a link to the bonus segment in your email on the Tuesday after this podcast episode goes up, or you can always find it on the Flock Facebook group. And if you're not a member of the Flock and you can afford it, you can join for $10 a month at ourhenhouse.com org slash donate. Also, if you're a Flock member, please join us for our Flock First Friday Zoom calls, which are once a month on the first Friday of the month at 4 p.m. Eastern, where we have really inspiring guests and some really good conversations about, about all of it, about activism, about animals, about life in general. So if you're a member of the Flock, check out the Flock Facebook group for updates or write to us at info at ourhenhouse.org. And if you like, you can set up a one-on-one -on -one conversation with Jasmine as well. Yeah, just email info at ourhenhouse.org. And we do all see all of the emails. So thank you in advance. So it's been an exciting week for me. You're famous. You're famous. <laughs> and you're not even just vegan famous. You're real famous. You're Rochester famous. Okay. None of that is true, but I appreciate it. I did, however, get a really cool article written in the local NPR here in Rochester. Well, not just written. It was on the radio, too. Yes. In fact, I don't know if I told you this, but Moore was running to run an errand or something and turned on the car and it came on, which is always fun. But yeah, so WXXI, which is an absolutely fabulous station here in Rochester, it's the local NPR and PBS, ran a story on my net zero living and kind of it was a lifestyle story so it, it was about the move from los angeles to rochester with like the fires blazing in the background as i was leaving the city and trying to find an, a, a climate friendly city it, using the new york times climate change map and then finding rochester and and moving here and then buying a hundred year old house and turning it into a net zero house. So that's what the story is about. We can link to it in the show notes. If you're interested in hearing the story, I will say I brought up veganism like 5,000 times while I was being interviewed. <laughs> I was just wanting it to get in so badly and it wasn't at all. Yeah. It didn't get mentioned at all. I somehow but... I'm not surprised. And I, I actually don't even know what's, I mean, I, for the purposes of that article, I can see how they wouldn't think it was a good idea because it's just too much. I mean, just 
presenting people with the idea of of paying money to have a house that produces as much energy as it uses, which of course is what net zero means, at least in this particular context. I, that's a radical concept for people, and and adding veganism to it, I think it might have they might have felt like people are going to shut down because every, we all know everyone shuts down when uh, you mention veganism. You know, and maybe they shut down as well. So I don't actually know whether, for the purposes of this article, that it was a good choice or a bad choice not to get in there. But I'm always sad when the word doesn't end up in print. I am. At least there was animal advocacy in one of the pictures because it was a picture that I did not know was being taken while I was standing in my office. And the book Anti-Racism in Animal Advocacy, like the book cover was behind me. So I guess it's pretty subtle. Yeah, like a really big poster of the book cover. So it really was very obvious. I think I, I think anybody reading the article would have picked up on that. So yeah, that was fairly cool. Anyway, you're famous. I mean, I'm so proud of you guys. Like, I just think it's remarkable that, that, I mean, I'm trying to work on my house, but I'm way, way behind you. And you just got so much done and so efficiently and, and then getting an article published about it. I mean, that's the whole name of the game. That's, that's what it's all about. I have to say, I did pitch her. I I was interviewed for WXXI around Thanksgiving, just to have a take on like vegan Thanksgivings. And so I had developed communication line with this incredible reporter, April Franklin. And at that time, yeah. So when the house was done, I pitched her and she was like interested. I'm only saying that because that to me is replicable for other people. Like uh, a lot of people who I meet with on -on one-on-ones have great ideas, you know, a lot of ideas that would be perfect op-eds, but I'm always encouraging people to write uh, an op-ed or a letter to the editor, but I really think pitching a story to your local radio station or your local paper is another really great idea because a lot of times people are looking. You have to just keep your pitches concise and to the point and make a compelling case. But anybody listening to our head now is is well-versed in making a compelling case, so... Yeah. And I I think another point that's important is that you and I are so used to living in huge media markets that the idea of this would seem impossible, you know, getting into the New York Mm -hmm. NPR station or the Los Angeles NPR station, like it hardly seems even worth trying. But if you're in a smaller city, yeah, they're really looking for local stories. So, So I think there are substantial possibilities. Not that you shouldn't try if you're in a bigger market, but especially if you're in a smaller market. Yeah, totally. Totally. So that was definitely fun. Uh, and hopefully everyone will somehow go vegan as a result of it. I don't know how. Before we move on, I do want to take a moment to recognize the fact that it is this is airing originally on April 2nd, which means this is your birthday episode because your birthday is April 6th. You will be celebrating the day you were born, and it is a national holiday, Marianne's <laughs> birthday. You you will be, as is usual for us, you will be celebrating it much more enthusiastically than I will. But I appreciate it. You are a birthday fan. Big, big birthday fan. I mean, I don't object to birthdays. 
you know, I, I guess I object to getting a little closer to death, but <laughs> but whatever. I don't object to them, but I, I don't. You really get excited about birthdays and I appreciate it because I like to have a fuss made about me as much as anybody. So we're going to go to the Corning Museum of Glass and you and I are going to go to the Van Gogh Experience, which I'm sure is cheesy, but I'm super excited. Like bring on the cheese, vegan cheese. Like, I don't see any reason why it should be cheesy. I, I uh, Stop being... Stop being hypercritical. It's my birthday celebration. Okay. Okay. And we'll just have a great, a grand old time. So thanks for being born. And I can't wait to celebrate with you. I I had no choice in the matter. True. You probably would have chosen not to be if you did have a choice. (laughs) No, no, don't make me go. Well, you were a cesarean baby. It's true. I I was just plucked, plucked from the safe, the safe womb, literally. I heard that. Cesarean babies are sunnier babies, but you proved that wrong. <laughs> no, that's not true. I was apparently an extremely sunny baby. Okay. I used up all of my sunniness in the first year. Oh, okay. Because <laughs> <laughs> we don't, because you don't go through the trauma of the birth canal or something. Yeah. In any case, from the birth canal to the Los Angeles Times, let's talk about this article. Well, it was covered by multiple venues. We're just talking about the LA Times version right now. It's the Supreme Court agrees to hear pork producers challenge to California anti-cruelty law, animal anti-cruelty. This is not good news. And, you know, normally I, I keep the legal stuff to the animal law podcast, but I think this is this is big enough bad news that we should at least mention it because people should be aware of it. Uh, you know, everybody knows about Prop 12, which, you know, is the second California proposition, which uh, extended what had been done in Prop 2. Prop 2 had made it illegal for California producers to use intensive confinement systems or, you know, limited their ability, uh, made it made them provide the animals with a little bit more space. And then Prop 12, in addition to like kind of clarifying that and, and expanding it a little bit, the really big thing that Prop 12 did was that it said you couldn't sell food in California. So even all the factory farms in Idaho and everywhere else would have to like comply with these new limits on on intensive confinement in order to sell in California. And of course, everybody wants to sell in California because there's so many people there. There have been so many court cases about this, really a lot of court cases about this and attempts in Congress and whatever. The industry is hugely upset by it. Clearly, this is the point where where we're really starting to impinge on their ability to function. All of their arguments failed. Uh, they were to the Supreme Court once before on a totally different argument, and it failed, and it didn't get reviewed by the Supreme Court. But now, after they failed in all of the federal courts, they have appealed to the Supreme Court. And, and you know, I don't want to go into too much legalese, but it's basically based on the Commerce Clause. And so it's a constitutional argument. And basically, the the jurisprudence under the Commerce Clause says that one state can't pass laws that interfere with other states' commerce. And California, and an argument that is supported by lots and lots of other cases, said we're not interfering with anything that that they want to do in Idaho. We're just saying, if you want to sell in California, which is our business, and we should be able to control, this is what you have to do. And the fact that the Supreme Court took this case is not good news because so far the decisions have been all in favor of the animals. So the Supreme Court can only take it to do something worse. Hopefully they will take it and just affirm it. But, but, oh, God, 
animal law is probably the most frustrating thing there is on the face of the earth. Because, you know, you take two steps forward and you take one step back, or sometimes you take one step forward and you take two steps back. And and the law, you know, is 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 important. I'm not going to say it's not, but we're never going to change the world with the law because it's fucked up, folks. <laughs> yeah. I think it's important to have something in your advocacy that is an easier lift to sort of balance out your advocacy. I'm not sure if you're doing that. I guess you are in a way because our house is so immediately, you know, satisfying in a way. Oh, yeah, I think I do. I think I do lots of things. Well, not do lots of things, but I, I, I learn about lots of things and, and get to talk to people who are doing lots of things that don't have anything to do with the law. So, yeah, I think I'm good. I just the animals are screwed. It, it can be very frustrating. I just discussed this case in class, in my animal law class last week. They've been sitting on this cert petition for a year. And I said to the students, you know, this is not good that they've been sitting on this for a year. Like if they were mm-hmm. going to say no, probably would have said it already. And here I have to go back to class this week and say, uh oh, well, maybe all that stuff we talked about last week isn't going to stick. Yeah. I... Okay. Well, on to better news. I find Lori yeah. Kim very hopeful. I think we should quickly pivot. This is exactly the right choice of an interview to listen to when you're depressed by the law. Jamaican-born and world-bred, Lori Kim Alexander has dedicated her life to working for social and environmental justice, specifically organizing around centering justice for LGBTQIA+, indigenous, and people of the global majority. She uses her work in biology, anthropology, and environmental education in a synergistic way to forward Black liberation. She sees veganism as a central platform for decolonization, food justice, and combating environmental racism to galvanize the struggle to liberate all marginalized beings. She will be joining Jasmine right after this. Hey there, our Hen House listeners. I'm Hope Bohannon, host of the Hope for the Animals podcast, sponsored by Compassionate Living. Join me on a journey to uncover the heartbreaking and heartwarming aspects of living vegan. My guests cover a variety of issues, but I like to focus on ethics, chickens and sanctuaries, the environment, anti-oppression activism, and the reasons for living vegan. If that sounds good to you, come check out the Hope for the Animals podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. Welcome to our Hen House, Lori Kim. Thank you so much, Jasmine. I'm so happy to be here. I am very excited to interview. I've been looking forward to this. I really enjoyed the process of researching you and putting together these questions, and I'm excited to to get to know your brain a little bit more. I don't start every interview at the beginning of the story, but I would really love for you to tell us a bit about your childhood and how it led you to an appreciation for animals. Thanks so much for that question. So I grew up in Jamaica, in the West Indies, not in Queens, (laughs) New York. Um, (laughs) And I grew up in Kingston mostly, and I spent a little bit of time in the country as well. And It's very interesting. Most people think of Kingston and they think, the first thing they think of is, oh, it's so dangerous. I'm like, well, the whole world is dangerous, okay? 
<laughs> but people don't think and think, oh, it's a capital city, so it's a city. But they don't think of the fact that there's so much greenery there as well. Also, that we have cows in the street, people have chickens, there's goats all over the place, and a lot of wildlife. So I grew up an only child, and y'all can say whatever you want to say about being an only child. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, I, I didn't choose it, but this is what happened. And so I spent a lot of time by myself and my friends were, you know, the trees, the grass, the invertebrates, the lizards that would come and visit. And I would sit for hours in the grass, just watching grasshoppers and ants go about their business. I was totally fascinated by ants and I would just watch them. And I would watch also the lizards um, go about their business in this one mango tree that was in front of my grandmother's house was one of my favorite places to be in the world because not only could I climb said tree very easily and I used to use like a, a gymnastics platform and I would do all these wonderful gymnastics on it, but there were friends living in the tree. So all the spiders I mentioned and one particular lizard who uh, we grew together. When I met them, they were very small and very, as we say in Jamaica, bossy, like very bossy, very, very loud, um, you know, trying to exert dominance and would stick out the wattle at me as they do to exert dominance. And I was just kind of like, I'm going to be here so you can decide whether you're going to stay or not. And you know, they stayed. And so we grew to be friends. But this is what I what I grew up with. I, I had toys, but I didn't have a lot of toys. My toys were, you know, like I said, stones and leaves and playing with my animal friends. And that gave me a, a deeper appreciation of the world, I think. That is so beautiful. I absolutely love that. If I looked back at my childhood from that perspective, I think I could almost rewrite some of my memories as being happier ones. So thank you for sharing that. How did this translate into veganism? Thank you for that question too, because if you know Jamaican food, you know that it is very much uh, flesh heavy, meat heavy. So a lot of the time folks are slaughtering the food right there, either in the house, or I should say the compound, the yard, right? People don't routinely slaughter things in the house or, you know, somewhere nearby, true farm-to-table life. Well, as a child, you know, I grew up eating meat, and my mother would always say to me, stop dissecting your food, because I would always be pulling out veins and gristle and things like that, trying to understand what it is I was eating. And I wouldn't eat things with heads on it. I wouldn't eat things with scales on it, feet, things like that. I just thought it was very strange. And then when I was living in the country, I moved to the country for two years of my life. I was from six to eight. And by country, I mean in the northern part of Jamaica, but right by a beach. So we lived on the mountain above a, a beach. And so when school let out in the summertime, you could run down the mountain and you had to run because it was hot and you weren't wearing shoes. So, but anyhow, we went to, to get a cake from someone nearby. And the cake just so happened to be 
ready at a time when they were slaughtering a goat. And I thought to myself, oh my gosh. And my mother realized what was going on. They had the goat strung up and this poor goat is crying for their life. And I was in such anguish. Luckily, my mother also was in anguish because you can get desensitized to that kind of violence very easily. So she ran in, got the cake and jumped back in the car and we drove off quickly. Luckily, just before that animal was murdered. <laughs> then as I got, went back to Kingston after that, I carried that with me. I never did eat goats before that and I never did after specifically because of that, but also because I just didn't understand why anyone would want to eat someone as friendly as a goat. Then when I got back to Kingston, again, you would not believe, but there was a school across from us and the watchman, the person who was the security, also had a herd of cows. And by herd, I mean like five. And they were the lawnmowers for the area. So one of the cows had a calf and I begged him, please may I have this calf. Now, where am I going to put a cow <laughs> in, in like a suburban area of Kingston? Right, right. Um, but I said, well, you can keep the calf and I will just be friends with the calf. And I watched, I named named her Lulibel. I am not sure where I got that name because um, that's not a very Jamaican name. <laughs> and we grew up together and I fed her by hand, grass, and, you know, after school I would come and, and visit. And so just these deeper relationships, I think, prepared me for understanding just that us as sentient beings were not very far apart from each other. And so when I came to this country and I saw that there were people that didn't engage in this torture of eating uh, non-humans, there were people who actively were seeking out ways to teach other people about this. I thought, oh my gosh, this is this is something that I want to join. So that's actually how I became politicized as a 14-year-old going vegetarian. And then I read an article about dairy cows. And all this while, mind you, I'd been feeling kind of like a hypocrite. Here I am talking about animal liberation, but I'm still eating cheese and dairy products and eggs. Well, I cut out eggs early, but after reading that article about what happens on a dairy farm and what about what the workers had to deal with and go through on the dairy farm is when I said, oh, okay, that's it. Yeah. And I was 18 years old Wow. at that time. Mm-hmm. It's so interesting to me how this sort of like innate respect for animals is part of so many of our early lives. And yet we become so easily socially conditioned to just go with it, just go with the flow of things that I think a lot of us early on, a lot of people I interview, we have those stories of those early connections. Like for you, it was dissecting the food you were eating because you were like, what is this? And for me, it was actually choosing to not dissect at school when that was a weird thing to do. And like, I was like cut into an animal, you know, and then I go to lunch and eat cut into an animal. 
but the the instincts were there. So flash forward, one of your major successes has been the Black Veg Fest. For those who aren't familiar, can you tell us what it is and your role and its great success? Yeah, absolutely. So Black Veg Fest was actually started by Omowale Adewale. And in that starting of that, he had the support of Nadia Muib, Francis Pena, and the three of them really got that going. And that was back in 2017, I think. <laughs> Might be 18. What is time anymore? Um, exactly. <laughs> I have COVID time in my head. Exactly. Um, but in any case, it was started as a response to the fact that a lot of these so-called vegan festivals or veg fests are really exclusive when it comes to including and seeing Black, Indigenous, and other folks of the global majority. We really aren't represented there. It feels like a strange world to be walking through this someplace where you're so happy to be in vegan space, but you're experiencing racism. For me, I'm experiencing racism and homophobia and femphobia and, you know, misogyny. And so these are the things. So when I heard that there was going to be this Black vegan festival in Brooklyn, I was like, oh, (laughs) wait, I need to somehow help be involved. So I hit up Omoale and I was like, hey, I can help. So I didn't actually, I went in and I I led some panels and, you know, moderated some panels and was there all day and just was so happy to be in space with all these beautiful Black people, listening to their amazing stories, eating amazing food, just being in, in glorious community, right? And I came the year after that, when it was in Weeksville, and just kind of hosted all the speaker sections of that, you know, everyone who was a presenter, there was a men's panel also that I moderated. And, you know, I just wanted to to help in any way that I could and stay connected. And then Nadia and Omoale asked me if I wanted to come and be an organizer as part of the core team. And I said, absolutely. Uh, it was a no brainer for me. And so there's a good team of us and, you know, includes Adam, who is an amazing um, musician as well. And we right now are planning the next one for this August. So Ooh. look out for that. Yes, Very absolutely. cool. And I have interviewed Omawale a couple times, at least two times. And I am a big fan of all of the work that he puts out into the world. So I love how you were attracted to that. And then you just were like, I'm getting involved. <laughs> like, I think that that is something that a lot of our listeners will be able to resonate with as well. Like just sort of being like, what's that? Give me like, I want, I need to be part of it. And I just, that is so cool. And I know that the Black Veg Fest has just been like a wild, wild success. But at the same time, I understand that you have had some pushback on it being a Black Veg Fest. I want to say, can you tell us about that? And I also want to say, what the fuck? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Okay. So first of all, the first response always is what the fuck, right? Like, But I'm also not shocked. Okay. So if I say to you that the other space is vegan and not welcoming simply because I am who I am breathing and living in this body, 
why would they want us to have a space that's ours? You know, white supremacy and capitalism are the babies of colonization. And so what that means is that if space is not made for the people who benefit from that, then that space, oftentimes people want to take that space back. And so folks look at this as something that, oh, I'm being excluded. Really? How's that feel? Because it's, it's not about exclusion. It's about holding space for what's ours. Black space is always sacred. Black space is always beautiful. And it's absolutely necessary when you've been pushed so far to the margins that you look like the trampled on beautiful flowers that grow in between the cracks and the concrete. How often does that happen? But we grow anyway. That metaphor has been used time and time again, but it is true. And we are much more than our marginalization. So folks need to really understand that you need to look inside yourself if you start to feel like, I'm not there, so it must be bad. Why you got to be everywhere? Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. Well, you have everywhere. Absolutely. So well said. Tell us about the cipher. Oh, sure. So... This is something that I have been thinking about for a really long time. The Cypher is something that I actually started as a private Facebook group. And it was it had no, no vegan intentions. It was really a political education book club for women, uh, Black women specifically, who were, it's a multi-generational space, multi-orientation space, you know, So there's folks who are lesbian, folks who are straight, folks who are bi, everybody was in that space and from all around the United States. And it started, you know, to just teach folks to read some of these books that we don't often get to read. Work by Angela Davis, Bell Hooks, Michelle Alexander. And that space also was a space for us to hold space for each other wake up and say hello to your sisters in space. And it petered off, but I chose to to keep that name for this iteration of it because what the cipher is now is a really glorious, expansive space for Black femme leadership. And that's Black femme leadership across the gender spectrum. And when folks think of the word femme, they think of it just pertaining to women. Well, femme works all the way through the spectrum of genders that we know is broader than the binary. And it's leadership in this way that brings together the true, for me, what is truly what veganism is about, which is anti-oppressive frameworks in a total liberation fashion. Because how is it that we can work in our separate little movements and not see the larger picture that they're all, all of us are crunched under by the same oppressive system and structures? On top of that, us as trans and queer Black people, oftentimes we don't get these political education in a way that, that makes sense to us. 
in a lot of ways, we're given a lot of information, say, around food justice, but veganism is left out of it because it's seen as really white, you know, because a lot of white language and a lot of oppressive language is used inside of vegan education. On top of that, when we look at gender education spaces, gender equity spaces, what do we think of first? We think of women only, cis women at that. And so that's not true equity. Again, we understand that gender is a large expense. And when you say something like gender equity, you need to not be putting it as a glass slipper. You need to be putting that as a huge, huge wonderful, beautiful, glittery ball of, of reality that you can't, you can't even know how deep it goes. So it's about talking about gender past what we know to what is known in community. And then also looking at environmental justice in a way that includes conservation information, includes natural history information. When a lot of us as People who are racialized in the world have been given space in the world to live and to grow or have taken space. A lot of that space is in environments where nature has been given less space. Nature has been subjugated in some way. I like to to sometimes call it just incarcerated in some way. I mean, in New York City, trees are literally behind iron. When we think about that, Think about the disconnect that happens when you're, you're thinking about where you're going to get your, your next meal, when you're thinking about housing. And if you're not thinking about that, when you're thinking about just surviving, trying to go to your job or get a job, when folks are looking at you sideways for all the myriad realities of your identities, folks aren't thinking necessarily about that tree that's behind iron. They're not thinking necessarily about the fact that there's connections between the, the fact that that tree's behind iron and the fact that there's there's some of our folks behind bars as well. What the cipher aims to do is to connect all of these spaces. And the reason is because I have been in all of these movement spaces and have felt excluded in every single one, have been targeted and harmed in every single one. We need spaces that work in a beautiful syncretic way, spaces that talk to each other and not talk for each other as well. Yeah, absolutely. I I lived in New York City for 20 years and I don't think I ever looked at the trees that way. Like, of course, they're <laughs> just, it's a powerful image to think of it in this greater context. And speaking of a greater context, I'm curious if you could Tell me your thoughts on what a vegan-minded collective is. Because I was struck by that turn of phrase, a vegan-minded collective. What is that? Yeah. So when you think of veganism, right, we think of doing the least harm. At least that's what I think of. And move it, for me, veganism does not include buying into capitalist structures, does not include buying into colonization and the mindsets that go with it. So when it's vegan-minded, it's putting veganism as the basis of all of this education, of all of this movement work, of the basis of anything that we get involved in, any actions, any, any work, any push against the system and the status quo. 
And so when you do that, you have a basis for people to be able to come to veganism slowly, gently, at the pace that they need and with the intensity that they need. It's like a common foundation that you're starting from, like it is the foundation from which everything else can grow. When you you come from a vegan-minded space, vegan is the norm. Vegan is the reality. It's not anything It's like an special. obvious, right. It's exactly. It's not anything special. It's it's just this is how things are. There's no apology, but there's deep explanation when folks need it. Yeah, you know? that's that's the world I want to exist in. Exactly. You've said that one of the first things the cipher wants to do is take Black folks, is particularly trans and queer Black femmes, out into the woods for hikes. Tell me about that. Why is that so important? I love that. Because you know how many times I tell people, like, oh, yes, let's go on a hike. And they're like, oh, now bugs grow up. <laughs> no. You know, I was like, oh, is that, are there snakes out there? Yeah. Yeah, be happy about that. You know, <laughs> um, you know, like these bugs are actually why you're alive. <laughs> Folks need to breathe air <laughs> with other species. We so belittle our interspecies connections. We exalt in our connections with our furry friends that live in our house. But let some wildlife come through. Oh no, get out of my house or die, you know? And so wanting to like have kikis in the woods is not just the fact that it's a revelation and a celebration of the fact that we are people who come from earth and that we are part of every ecosystem that we live in, not separate, not despite it, but truly a part of it gets people to a space that is so fulfilling. There's been so many studies done. A lot of them were done in the 90s. And you can actually see the difference when someone can just look at the woods, much less go into the woods. So much more clear in their work. And I was almost, almost said productive, but we are not units of production. We are not. And so when you're clear, all of the pain of the world can can move past you. You can see yourself better. You can grow, you can live, you can thrive. Absolutely. It is so healing. It is It is always 100% of the time gives you a different perspective and a different relationship with yourself. Tell us about your work in biology and anthropology and how it relates to your activism. So first, I'll, I'll start with anthropology. It was actually a concentration of my first undergrad degree. And I basically made my degree. And I'm grateful that I was able to do it that way. I did an ethnography on women in Afro-Caribbean belief systems and the healing modalities that they use. And that was a lot of words. So to break it down, looking at... Uh, African traditions that were sustained by the Africans that were pitchforked into the Caribbean during the transatlantic slave trade. Looking at this rich, deep, <laughs> dynamic history 
and looking at women specifically, because when you get this information back when I did this, I had a hard time finding any information about women. But what we know is a lot of this work is matriarchal, is matrilineal, and is passed down through the women. At that time, I didn't really have the focus and the clear clarity that I have in the lens now, that I have now. And so I wish I had looked past the binary to, to see the expanse that exists. But at that time, that's what I had. So that's what I looked at. And in that way, I started to see just how relegated to the shadows women were in, in the Afro-Caribbean belief systems. Um, looking at things like Obia, Mayal, Kumina, Obia, Voodoo, Candomblé, and Santeria, all of them are very much similar, you know, and they have this synergistic relationship with Catholicism and Christianity, and because they had to, right, to survive in a lot of ways. And so looking at that, that really deepened my understanding of what happens when Black women are left out of the picture. The picture is never complete, one, but two, you get a lie, because you've missed half the story, if not most of the story. Also looking at my home country, Jamaica, realizing that folks are not taking up these this tradition. At that time, they were not. And so the tradition was dying out. And it was dying out happily, you know, because it's a very Christian country. Also, when you look at that, look at these traditions and the way that they relate to the environment, living with the land, working with the land, deep respect for herbs, for trees, for rivers, for rocks. Space has sacred reality in Afro-Caribbean belief systems. The way that we orient the world is not, is not flat. It includes everything around us and everything has spirit, everything has meaning and everything has worth and is worthy of reverence. So that really helped to to hone my lens a lot and led me to a lot of the folks who I started reading. Audre Lorde, Bell Hooks, Alice Walker, Angela Davis, and Franz Fanon. And Martin Luther King, and even Marcus Garvey, you know, who at first I was like, oh, here's this man being very oppressive. But reading a lot of the work, it, it was so deeply entrenched in this, this Afro-Caribbean belief systems that, you know, probably would not, people would not make, necessarily make those connections, but you could see it because we're not separate from it. And also as a way towards Black liberation that gives us the strength and, and depth of our history, right? History that denied a lot of people around the world, uh, especially those of us in the diaspora. So there's that. And then in biology, try being a Black femme in biology. <laughs> <laughs> it's not for the faint of heart, truly. Being a Black scientist in general even to this day, like you, you, when you look at things, even after these righteous uprisings in 2020, folks have maybe blackwashed science 
So you could put a pretty picture on it, literally a picture. But when it comes down to it, who's who's on the board? Who's on the panel? Who are you hiring in your labs? And who is doing conservation work? In all of my classes, I was mostly either the only person of color, the only person of the global majority, or the only Black person. Definitely, most of the time, the only Black femme. And, you know, you have to learn through so much embedded racism, so much racism that folks don't, they have no idea that they're throwing at you oftentimes, and oftentimes very intentional. And then add patriarchy to that. And, you know, you get a really nasty soup with thorns in it. But I learned it anyway. I learned it because I saw liberation as liberation of land as a priority. And that's why I switched gears. I started, well, I started in biology, went to anthropology, and then went back to to biology because I, I said, this is this is where the work is. No one is advocating for the non-humans and earth in Black and Indigenous and global majority spaces with the same intensity that we would be for our lives, right? And also my voice is not seen. I don't see, I don't see us in these scientific journals. I don't see myself. If I do, it's around medicine or something that's going to make somebody some money. But land conservation, wildlife conservation, Mm -hmm. trying to end extinction, slow it at least, none of that. So that's part of the work as well. Using that, using conservation as a way to forward liberation for all of us. Because if we are liberated, that's cute. But if the land is trash... If our fellow wildlife siblings, if the trees, if the ecosystems are gone, we are not going to prosper. Wow. So powerful. You have said that 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 work has facilitated your being able to center initiatives against environmental racism and for the implementation of environmental education for people of the global majority around indigenous ecological knowledge and decolonialism through veganism. <laughs> Let's talk about that. For one thing, how is veganism useful in decolonizing food? So when you look at veganism at its core, strip away whatever else you want to add, what does it mean? It means the end to subjugation of all the other species other than humans. When you do that, you upend the status quo in so many ways. Who do you think is in the slaughterhouses? It's going to be the folks who are on the margins. Most of the folks are immigrants to this country. A lot of folks don't have the documentation that this country is asking them for. A lot of folks are not are not going to be paid well. High level rates of PTSD. And then when you look at the food that is available to folks, folks in the same communities that are working in the factory farming system and being crunched under by it are also 
getting the scraps from it. We don't get health food stores. We don't get whole foods available in the same ways that we should. Of course, her name is is escaping me, but I'll I'll tell you later. But uh, she coined the term food apartheid because a lot of times people talk about food deserts or food swamps, right? A food swamp is like an area saturated with processed food, fast food, and a food desert is supposed to be an area that has no food or very little food. But food apartheid is the truth. It is good food deliberately being denied to groups of people specifically because of their socioeconomic standing. And so when you take veganism now, most people look at it as white because they look at it as expensive. Well, that's because there's capitalism built into providing vegan products, you know, all these fancy meat alternatives and things like that. When we look at our ancestral roots, though, our realities as people of the global majority, shit, as people, right? When we look at that, those are whole foods that we ate. They're not primitive foods or anything. They're foods we eat now, you know? And so a lot of it did not include meat in the same way that it did, that it does now. And that actually came from colonization, that heavy reliance on meat, that reliance to look and feel like you something fancy and expensive. So, you know, you're going to slaughter all this, <laughs> all these animals to look the part, right? All that came from ha- having to be one better than the next colonizer. So we know how to eat. It's a reminder, as far as I'm concerned, it's a reminder of what we, what we came from. Also, if we look deeper into the way that factory farming is set up, the way that our <laughs> food pyramids and such, food education is set up, it is highly, highly toxic. These systems, for me, they're monetized carceral systems. If you look at the, say, a dairy farm, for instance, folks have already put this forward and said that this is a system that is a gen- is gen- uh, part of gender-based violence, it's engendering gender-based violence. And when you look at that as well, these are also part of carceral systems. It's subsidized by the government in the same way that prisons are subsidized by the government. When you look at it in conjunction with prisons, there's prisoners working these types of of places as well. When you look at it in conjunction with prisons, prisoners are fed grade grade D food. There's prisoners who go hungry because they cannot eat that food. Why is there commissary? Why do you need commissary if you're supposed to be given three squares a day? But they're not. So all of these things, if you use a vegan mindset, and expand it to see exactly where anti-oppression can come in in every part of the food system, it's easy. It's easy to call it what it is. It's easy to call it out for what it is. It doesn't have to be an exclusive thing. I am a little nervous to bring up what I what I want to because I'm afraid that my thoughts won't be as formed as I want them to, but I will anyway. <laughs> um, I 
So I was a vegetarian for years and then I went vegan because I was I was working in LGBTQ activism and AIDS awareness activism and I I was a feminist and I was a person who had overcome certain things in my life including date rape and things like that. I was consuming a lot of dairy and eggs at the time. And then when I went vegan, when I was 24, it was because I learned about the exploitation of the reproductive parts of dairy cows and egg-laying hens. And I thought, well, I can't support this because I myself you know, had been date raped and because I was working to liberate all of these other marginalized communities so why would I continue to be a part of oppressing this marginalized community? That being said, that was what I talked about for so many years as why I went vegan, and it is why I went vegan. However, it was many years later that I realized that I was basically reinforcing a gender binary by talking about the quote-unquote like female reproductive parts of these dairy cows and egg-laying hens. And I started to look at my history from a different lens and recognize that there was something as an LGBTQ person, as an LGBTQ activist that I was uncomfortable with in how I was framing this particular subject. So I don't know what my question is, but I, it is something I think about a lot. I'd love your thoughts on it. Yeah, no, I think that that's the sticky part. That's where it gets sticky, right? Because on the one hand, as far as I'm concerned, we need to talk about that. We need to talk about what is happening to non-humans in the system in the ways that it is happening. And I also am struggling with with assigning gender to non-humans because we don't know. A lot of times you hear this all the time in vegan space. We speak for the animals. Do you? They asked you, who translated? And why are you the why are you the one translating? Who who appointed you to do that? Non-humans speak for themselves in their strength and survival. But I do think that it's important to bring those things up to folks. And you can always add context to it. We can add context of this is gender-based violence. And the truth of the matter is that if we look at gender-based violence, we can see the continuum to all of us in the gender expanse. And then you can you can make those connections there, but you got to start where people know. And those of us who have that deeper knowing, either because we embody a gender expansive being or because we understand and are working to understand our siblings who are gender expansive, we have an obligation to have these conversations. And for folks who are, if we want to call them stuck in the binary or are really, that's all they know, you really have to to break it down. Start where people are. And that's where people are. It was also years before I even thought about what happens to the, the steer. It was years before I was like, wait, there has to be semen extraction. There has to be, it's also rape. Like there were so many things, there were so many ways that I had been looking at it. And I'm talking about like well into my veganism, well into that evolution. It makes me wonder like, what what am I going to realize next? Yeah, it's just, I find it very interesting. It also, so so many of these things are so ingrained in us. Like I, I grew up singing that song, you know, this land is your land, this land is my land. 
And I'm in my 20s and I'm like, is it? It's not my land. Like there's something so fucked up about this idea that we own this, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Land liberation is, for me, I just don't know how to not talk about it if you talk about conservation. And I think that ownership, again, is a tool of colonization. It's a tool of patriarchy when we think about these things. And also, hello, when we talk about patriarchy, patriarchy hurts the folks who are upholding patriarchy too, you know. So a lot of times people think, oh, patriarchy is about cishet men or just cis men. No, patriarchy is about power and control, period. It's about violence. And so I think that when we start to deconstruct what ownership means, then we'll really truly see what it means to be vegan, what it means to be living on, in this world and being part of all the ecosystems that we are a part of. How do you use indigenous knowledge and practices in environmental education? And, and how does that relate to your relationship to animals? Yeah, thanks for that too. You have such good questions. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> so, so first of all, when people hear indigenous, they think folks who are native to the Americas or maybe folks who are native to Asia, but folks never think of folks who are indigenous to Africa, to the, to the African continent. So indigeneity and in, indigenous knowledge is really in all of us when we think about it. Some of us are less far removed, but it's just a reminder when you use that. It's a reminder and it, it hits people right at the gut. So you're, you're coming to folks with the understanding that at some point, some grandmother told you that you should drink lemons when you, you have a sore throat or have a cold, maybe gargle salt. Where'd that come from? That's indigenous knowledge. It don't have to be some fancy thing or some, you know, name of, of some herb you've never heard of. It can be simple as ginger. Ginger ale, like Black people in this country go to ginger ale for a myriad things, a whole bunch of things, right? But if you have an upset stomach, oh, find some ginger ale. That's ginger you're looking for. Unfortunately, most ginger ale don't have ginger. That's another <laughs> That's how you use indigenous knowledge is really reminding folks, hey, by the way, someone somewhere whispered to you this thing. And you may not have understood the whisper, but you heard it and you, you kept it and you held it. And me speaking it out loud now is giving reverence to that whisper. That's where you, you can make the connections to. It's that baseline that you start with, too. Yeah, I love that. Switching gears, can you talk about how environmental racism plays out in the everyday lives of Black folks in America? Yeah, I can absolutely talk about it. I could give you an example of here in the Bronx, where I'm living right now. I'm very grateful for the section of the Bronx I live in. I'm, I, I have a park across the street. There's a, a red-tailed hawk that every now and again I wake up and, and hear them calling. But there's also 
were kind of adjacent to Riverdale, which is a very rich white area for the most part. And so this area kind of has been left alone a little bit, but go a little bit further down, maybe 15 minutes walk further down, there's not much green space to be seen. And there are less trash cans. And um, actually, even in my area, there's less trash cans than, say, in Riverdale. And maybe if you're, you're fighting to, to keep green space, they take it from you. And listen to the, the white folk who come from Riverdale or come from some other state and somehow are all, all of a sudden New Yorkers to make <laughs> their community members, you know, even though, you know, they live pottery barn lives, you know, <laughs> right? Um, but the folks who have been living and growing and building, let's talk about that. Like people to think, act like, Poor people tear down their neighborhoods. Poor people build their neighborhoods, man. So building these neighborhoods, utilizing the green space, you know, for what's needed. And then all of a sudden, they're maybe kicked out of green space. And all of a sudden, it's paved over to make a green walkway. Okay, so here we are again, incarcerating nature, curating it for whom? And giving money to whom to do said curation? Policing folks through nature. So that's that's one example. I'll give you another Bronx example. The fact that this is the poorest borough, but it is also the greenest borough. The poverty and the greenness, they don't coincide. It's green at the top and nothing but warehouses. And a lot of the time, also industrial factories and things like that. And that's zoned that way. And people live in, amongst that and thrive, thrive amongst that. There's brilliance and beauty here in the Bronx. I love it here. The fact is that this is also the borough with the highest asthma rate. And there's, that's not a coincidence. That was by design. That is because the city planners, New York City planners, New York City government decided that these are throwaway people. These are the people who make the rest of the city run. Yeah. We can always get more. What is the North Bronx Collective? So the North Bronx Collective, we started as mutual aid. Then we quickly realized that we too are in need of mutual aid. So we gave that over to another group that was able to, to, to sustain that. But we started as a response to COVID. We'd gotten together before that, though, uh, to try and also respond to some of that environmental racism and that degradation of the area, the rezoning to bring in big business and push out mom and pops and work on several platforms there. And then also a lot of the housing issues that are going on in the Bronx a lot of really shady dealings with landlords are is allowed here. And so we're just building on that platform. And again, as we moved through the pandemic, we realized that folks also need green space. And so some of our members had been uh, members of Friends of Tibbet's Tale. Tibbet's Tale 
is a, about a four block long, which in New York City, that's long, right? A stretch of woods that is actually at the end of a brook that had been buried to make land for a plantation, literally a plantation. Van Cortland Park was a plantation that the Van Cortlands owned. And there's a connection to my country and I can explain that, but it's a long story, but it's a very interesting one. And in any case, this this green area we realized needed support and the non-humans moving through that area needed support. The lead was found there and we wanted to kind of revitalize the land, clear it up, clear up the garbage so that migratory songbirds, migratory pollinators and resident wildlife could use it. But also folks need air in the middle of a pandemic that uh, attacks your upper respiratory system first. So we went in the space, we cleaned it up and we'd been working it for a while. We're a group of um, Black, Indigenous, and folks of the global majority who are assigned female at birth, and women and non-binary folk, right? And we had a lot of volunteers also from around the Bronx and folks in the neighborhood who really wanted to, to come in and get their hands dirty. It's really therapeutic to work with the land, but also to call for community control of land. The Parks Department owned that land, owns that land, right? And so we kept asking them when we finally got to meet with them, what you want to do with it? And they wouldn't tell us. Well, now we know they've locked us out of the land and we think that they're going to be using it as part of their capital project, which is problematic for several reasons. Community was not consulted around this. And so that's that's really a lot of the work we do. We, we use the land as a, a tool for education around things like housing rights, things like environmental justice, you know, things like food justice. Yeah. Can you tell us about its evolution toward veganism? Like I said, we started, I was one of the, the members who we sat down at a restaurant, we were talking and there was just five of us at the time. And then when we started to do mutual aid, what we started first was giving people gift cards to go to the supermarket. And I felt a little bit of a way about that, right? Because gift cards to buy whatever you want, which is probably not vegan. And then folks came to us to, you know, ask for them to come in and say, I'm hungry. Here's my shopping list. And I was like, listen, I can't do this. I can't do that. Then we started um, to distribute food out of a church and got donations and things like that. But again, those that wasn't vegan. I said, look, if you want me to continue, we're going to have to look at the food that we're giving people. I cannot be a part of this in good faith if we don't move to an understanding that includes the fact that folks need good food to eat and animal products are extremely bad for your upper respiratory system. On top of it, it's environmentally unsound. And so there was only a teeny bit of pushback, you know, and it's like, well, what about, you know, kids like to eat mac and cheese? One person said, I said, look, everyone can eat vegan food. 
So we decided to provide whole foods, vegetables, whole grains, you know, no canned produce, things like that. Good for you for speaking up about that. I I know a lot of people sort of divorce themselves from their ethics at that point. And they're like, well, I'm doing something else and it shouldn't, it shouldn't play a role, but it doesn't feel right to do it that way. So that's great. Now you've said, and I, I believe, please correct me if I'm wrong, you've, that health should not be the sole focus when thinking about the role of veganism in Black lives. Can you unpack that? Yeah. My friend Tabitha said to me just recently, it's okay to be sick. People get sick. And I feel like that sums up my thoughts about that because we're so obsessed with like clean eating and, you know, healthy food. Yes, we need healthy food because we have not been systematically and historically, we have not in this country been afforded healthy food unless we we struggle and grow it ourselves or procure it ourselves in some way. But that can't be the sole focus because you miss the whole crux of why the system has developed into what it is now. You miss the truth of why Black folks are the most marginalized in this country. You miss the truth of the history of violence, continued daily aggregative violence. So yes, absolutely health is important, but it's not the only thing. Yes, can we use health to bring folks to veganism? Absolutely. But don't stop there. Honestly, to me, it's not only unwise, it's unethical. It's irresponsible. You've also said that non-human liberation is an easy lift in most any movement space. How so? If you if you are working for liberation, it's not a jump. <laughs> it's it's not a far jump. If you need liberation, so do your siblings. If you need liberation, guess who else is in the system? And so if you liberate yourself and the rest of the system is fraught with violence, how is that a win? Well, I feel like I could talk to you for I feel like I love you. <laughs> like you're so inspiring. Please, can you tell our listeners how they can follow you online and support your efforts? So I'm gonna be real with you. I am not on socials yet, but stay tuned. Good job. Uh, well done. Yeah. yeah, it just had to happen. Um again, just to keep myself safe. I had to do it. It's just a little too violent for me at the moment. However, um, we got a website coming soon, you know, and socials coming soon. But there's an email, cipher.the at protonmail.com. Amazing. And we will put that email address in the show notes, if that's okay with you as well. Okay, great. And Lori Kim, thank you so much for all that you do. There are like 9,000 things that you said that I cannot wait to just sit and think about. And I definitely want to have you back on. So please keep us posted and let us know how we can support you. And I really appreciate your spending so much time with us today. Thank you so much. I'm so glad that 
we had this conversation. You have the best spirit and just such wonderful depth of insight in your questions. I appreciate you. Appreciate the space. Too. It's very much a team effort with the questions. I want to give shout outs to my colleagues who help with the research and help with the questions. So I appreciate you saying that. I will pass that on. Social media has become such an important part of almost all of our lives. So please make our hen house part of that social media experience for you. You can like us on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram. We try to post some news stories to help you keep up to date on what's happening in the world for animals. You can also find us online, of course, uh, on our website, ourhenhouse.org, or you can email us. If you have some concerns or questions or something you'd like us to discuss on the podcast, let us know. Info at ourhenhouse.org. Anxiety surprising. Our first story, it's actually a little old. I'm sorry. I kind of missed it when it came through. And it was actually sent to us by a flock member, Gary Witten. So thank you, Gary, for sending this because it's really, it's very entertaining. Mudslinging between alt meat and traditional egg is getting kind of dirty. It's from the Washington Post. And it's about these great ads that that were put up by Just Egg. I really love them. I, there's a picture here of one of the ads. It's in Times Square, and it's a picture of a, a "Do Not Disturb" sign on a on a door, and it says "Do Not Disturb." Plant-based lovers do it better, and and that it has their their website. So, meat industry is kind of annoyed about this, which is always nice to see. And as this points out, the alternative egg company Eat Just uses the ads to direct people to its campaign's website which claims men who eat a healthy plant-based diet are less at risk for erectile dysfunction, citing research. Imagine that, citing research. Then this article points out that erectile dysfunction tends to go with age. Well, yeah, obviously. But it can also commonly occur in men with high blood pressure, a history of heart disease, or diabetes. These health problems have in turn been linked to higher red meat consumption. The whole thing seems obvious, doesn't it? But as the article points out, there is by no means universal consensus on this. One of the people who, or one of the organizations that that disputes it is, uh, unsurprisingly, the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, which has declared the campaign as having, quote, no basis in fact. And the article points out that, uh, you know, Eat Just is obviously a vegan company. And uh, talks about how, how the meat industry is also pushed back. And this is how they describe them pushing back. Traditional animal agriculture has pushed back against alt meat, claiming common nomenclature, words like meat or milk, confuses consumers, prompting a flurry of legislative activity and lawsuits around labeling. Yeah, they argue that consumers who aren't confused are confused, and they get, they get legislatures and lawsuits. And plant-based companies argue that they're they're causing men to become to have erectile dif- dysfunction and uh, yeah legislatures and lawsuits don't seem to be interested. As I said, the National Cattlemen's Beef Association is pushing back, and and one of their spokespeople said it's sad when others choose deception over fact. Yeah, you know I have to agree. It really is sad. Okay. Another thing that seems to be driving them crazy. I just have more and more articles on this. Food poisoning. This is from meetingplace.com, from the Legally Speaking column by Sean Stevens. 
getting persistent about persistence. I found this column to be extremely enlightening. And really, I learned a lot about, or at least a bit, about how the meat industry slaughterhouses deal with with finding pathogens like listeria. He starts out by pointing out that of the 97 food product recalls for pathogens in 2021, more than half of them involved food products that had been produced over the course of multiple days, weeks, or months. In 2022, there have already been 19 recalls of food products containing pathogens. Of these, 13 involved products that had been produced over multiple days, weeks, and months. Now, I am not sure meat is produced over days, weeks, and, and months, but he seems to be extremely concerned about it, and this, this shows why. This is what was new to me. He says that the root source of these recalls is increasingly being proven to be a persistent, or put differently, a resident pathogen, which has firmly established a permanent residence somewhere in the processing environment of the companies involved. And he thinks that many of these food recalls were announced by companies with extremely sophisticated food safety experts, plans, and environmental monitoring programs. But then he goes on to basically disprove the entire statement because he talks about what they're doing. He says that these companies are also failing to understand that once pathogens enter the food processing environment, they will contaminate food products. Well, that seems kind of obvious. And it, then he refers back to this idea of persistence. And he talks about if they are, right, they, they root around and they do look for, for pathogens. And then he says, if listeria is found in a drain, the most important question is where did the listeria come from and how did the listeria get into the drain? And he points out that that question is rarely seriously explored. This is because, he says, I quote, to answer these questions truthfully, production needs to halt, equipment needs to be disassembled and treated, and production suffers. So what they do instead is they clean the drain, and then they get a few negative results from the drain, and then they're on their way, even though they like there's germs apparently all over this place. They're going to kill everybody. Well, fortunately, they're not going to kill you or me. Well, they probably will in some way, but but, but not not by poisoning their their dead animal flesh. All right, finally, from wattag.net. No, wattagnet.com. It's a little confusing. How does stocking density affect pullet welfare? What a difficult question to answer. Do you think pullets who are apparently they're they're like chickens who are in between the chick and the laying hen stage. Uh, they do have to, you know, they have have to have a little time to grow into who they are. Stocking density is the subtitle. Stocking density has been established as a factor in the poultry industry that affects bird behavior. Then the first line of this article is, pullets appear to be unaffected by stocking density, according to the initial findings of a study conducted by Purdue University. Of course, Purdue University being, you know, a huge, huge, huge ag school, lots of funding available. And so this is this is just a classic example of how research is done to prove that animals are just perfectly happy being in factory farms. It points out that higher stocking densities can potentially affect birds' abilities to exhibit natural behaviors and easily access feed and water, as well as negatively impact health and production. So they want to do an experiment to find out if that's happening in pullets because there is no stocking density established yet for pullets. So they did this horrible experiment on these poor little chickens. And 
what they did was they they exposed them to all different stocking densities and to all different stressors. And they found out that after evaluating them for metabolic changes, immune function, and production welfare measurements, whatever the hell those are, presumably, like, did they die? They decided it was all fine. So, you know, I think we can we can tell by the fact that there weren't metabolic changes, there weren't changes in their immune function, and their production welfare measurements were were the same, that they're perfectly happy. That's basically science when it comes to the meat industry. And that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. Well, that's it for this week's show. As always, if you like the podcast and if you're able, we invite you to join the flock at ourhenhouse.org slash donate for $10 a month or $100 a year. Or you can make whatever donation you're comfortable with. Another way to support us is to leave us a fabulous review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts or like us on Facebook. You could also leave us a review there or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Our Hen House. If you shop on Amazon, you can use Amazon Smile using Our Hen House as your favored charity. And of course, tell your friends about us. If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. And thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, and to Jen Riley for her work in producing this podcast, to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Eric Montgomery of the Podcast Haven for his work editing this podcast, and to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez, and to Vicki Bichler for her membership and administrative help. We'd also like to give a shout out to the amazing Veronica Kalinska, who designed our brand new logos and other graphics. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode, so don't forget to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jasmine Singer. Thank you so much for tuning in. Listener.